Welcome to A Moment with Modern Mentors, a podcast series by Digital Collective Co, where we soak up wisdom, anecdotes, and actionable tips from Australian startups, female founders, business leaders, industry pioneers, and C-suite executives. I am Rebecca Campbell. I started out managing band many years ago, and then I went into tech. Around 2011, I started a tech company, which became Hey You, the app you've been used to buy coffee. And then more recently, have had children, two young children, and wrote a book, which is called 138 Dates. Hi, today I interview Rebecca Campbell. She's the author of 138 Dates, a brand new book that just came out in July. And she is a phenomenal woman. She's a New Zealander. She's currently living back in New Zealand with her husband and two children. But I met her, we were deciding it was probably around just under 20 years ago, back in the music industry days of Sony and Universal for me, when she was a music band manager. She was then, gave that away and became a tech entrepreneur. Now she is a writer and author and published author, no less, of 138 Dates. I'm halfway through or a few chapters through and it is a page turner, put it that way. We've had a great chat today and I can't wait for you to hear this one. It's really inspiring. Another inspiring woman on the show. So we've been really, really lucky. I hope you enjoy it too. Thanks. Hi, Rebecca. Welcome to A Moment with Modern Mentors. It's a call for change season two, and this is episode 12. And I'm very excited to have you on the podcast. We did meet in the music industry. It feels like, you know, probably 20 years ago now, right? Yes. Maybe not that long, but probably like pretty close to that, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's right. Probably not quite that long, but almost. So I guess what I wanted to first start off with was just, I guess, how have you landed this job of being an author of 138 Dates today? And tell us a little bit about that. And then I guess how you got there. Sure. Well, the big backstory. So I went from managing bands to deciding to go into tech, starting a tech business. The first business was called Posse.com and I knew nothing when I started. And so I learned a whole lot through that process. I started kind of thinking to myself every week of something that I'd learned that I thought was important. That was either like a personal learning or a business learning. And I started making notes in my journal and I thought maybe I should write a blog and just make the stuff public. And so that's kind of where the writing started. And then that blog, it was really honest. That was the kind of trademark of it. I noticed that the more kind of personal I got, the more scared that I was to hit like publish the better that they do in terms of like the more people would write it, they were impacted or, you know, the more shares they'd get in comments and everything. And so I kind of like followed that. And then that blog became a New York Times column um, in like 2013. They kind of picked it up and asked me to write one post. It was one post I wrote, which they really loved. And so I put that on the New York Times website and then the blog became a New York Times blog. And then I started writing a business book based on the blog because I was approached by a publisher. And then I got really bored writing this business book, to be honest. I thought like, this is not the most value that I could possibly create for the world. And I'd had this kind of personal story at the same time as building the businesses of being kind of alone in my career, like focused entirely on work, but I really wanted to have a family and a partner. And so I'd gone through this big challenging hunt for a partner and all the personal growth that came through that. But like the value, you know, Back when I was writing this business book, it was 2018 or something. And I had a little baby and I was pregnant with our second baby. And I was just so happy. And I just thought, this is the book that I should write. And so I wrote it. And that's kind of, I guess, how I got to where I am today. You've got to remind people of the title again. It's such a magic title. (laughs) It's called 138 Dates, which is because my husband was my 138th date. um, (laughs) That's awesome. There's a big story behind that. 
As I said to you when we just were off camera, but I'm a couple of chapters in and it is, I'm hooked because you're a fantastic writer. I mean, how, I know you said you had a blog, but have you always been kind of like a strong writer and this has been your calling your whole life? When I was at school, I was. Writing was my thing, mm. I think. Well, I mean, I was quite good at like writing poems since I was in primary school. And then in high school, I entered this short story competition. My dad was a writer. Like he was a, would write for fun and would enter short story competitions and stuff. I remember him entering the like national Sunday newspaper short story competition. And he was just like, there's a high school category. And I was the first year of high school. So I was like, I could do that. And so I tried and I thought it was not a particularly good story at all. I was quite embarrassed by it. But anyway, I won. And then, and then I kind of like at school, like I said, was kind of known as like someone who could write stories and English was my best subject. But then I lost it when I went into business and I just forgot about it. I think it wasn't something that I followed as a career or something I came back to when I started writing the blog and was like, oh, that's right. I'm quite good at this. <laughs> and like, I really actually, funny, you just enjoy things that you're good, naturally good at doing. So I really enjoyed it as well. Yeah, amazing. I mean, I'm a couple of chapters in, as I said, and I've, I'm kind of getting to know your family and your parents at this point is kind of a candid way of writing, which is just so you want to read another page and another page. So tell us a little bit about how it has been to put all those open, candid moments out onto not only a digital blog, but actually published paper. Yeah. I mean, when I did it as a blog, it was quite confronting, but I always felt like I would, it was almost like I felt like I would press publish and then I would fall and then like the audience would kind of catch me and be like, I felt like that too. And I always got caught. And after a certain amount of doing that, I felt quite confident that I would get caught by, you know, an audience essentially of people that felt the same way. And so it became less scary, but that was like a business, you know, that's a career side, even though it was personal stuff about career and the personal challenges that I had. It wasn't like I haven't been on a date for 10 years and I'm scared about having sex and like all that stuff. That was a whole nother level of like, do I really have to say that? And I thought that that was the most scary thing I could ever say out loud. But then when I actually came to write the book, I was like, oh my God, I have to tell that story. <laughs> and then when I'm writing it, I was like, oh, but I tried to write around some of the embarrassing stuff, but I found whenever I did that, it didn't work. And the only way that it worked was just to like, like just completely kind of open your heart and be completely honest, try to get into that moment again and just download what it felt like, what was going through your head, you know, and what happened. Without kind of giving away, I mean, we we obviously have heard the punchline already. You've got two little young kids and you've met your husband at the 138th date, but without giving too much of the book away, can you tell us some funny stories you had along the way? And obviously it's been quite a life-changing experience to go through that. And, and obviously at the other side, you've brought a real positive by, by writing and publishing an amazing book. You know, are there any funny stories along the way that you'd love to share? Yeah. I mean, there's lots, like the story is about becoming the right person as much as it is about finding the right person. So, I mean, the story is about like at the beginning, you know, what I was looking for in a partner was completely wrong. You know, like I wrote, I remember I made this list, which is in the book of like smart, tall, and fun. And, <laughs> and I was so sure that that was a good list. And I remember like my therapist, like I told her this is what I was looking for. And she just laughed at me and was like, I'll see how many dates it takes. And then, yeah, like there's heaps of things. Like as I started dating, when there was like, you know, one story was this, I think it was like, oh, okay, two dates. And my second date was this guy, Julian, who um, I've changed names. 
I thought, okay, this guy's going to be smart because he's a game programmer. And then we met and he was a gamer, like like he played games all day at his parents' house. And I was like, oh, okay. And he wore sneakers and he's just like he'd never been on a date before and it was super awkward. And I felt really bad as well because I don't want to be mean and I don't want to be like the person who rejects people either. That's just a really, it was an awkward experience for both of us. And so then I started going, okay, well, from then on, I decided I was going to do like a screening calls. <laughs> so like I would work out. So I had this thing of doing one day every week for a year. That was kind of the premise of how I was going to find my partner. Well, I'll, I'll do like messaging on the apps on like one day or, you know, during the week. And then I'll have calls on Sundays and then I'll go on a date on a th- every Thursday night. And eventually it became like this kind of schedule, but I worked out that was like one insight along the way of like how to improve that strategy. Another story, like the next date was this guy, Henry, who was like a lawyer and really good looking. And and we went out to dinner and it was amazing. And then he walked me back to my apartment and we kissed. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. This is the best date ever. And then he's like, I'll call you tomorrow. And then he never called me again. (laughs) I was like sitting there looking at my phone for three days, text messages, thinking he must have lost his phone or something. (laughs) There's some stuff like, you know, some insights that come from things like that is like, so I went and saw the therapist and she was just like, you know, you got to think he's just not looking for what you're selling. There's nothing wrong with you. Like you as a product are fine. You just have like a set of unique features and you need to find someone who's looking for like those exact features. So if he doesn't call you back, it's not that there's anything wrong. It's that either he's not even looking for a long-term relationship or he's just like, he's looking for something else and that's fine. It's just, and that kind of helped me deal with because there was out of 138 men there was heaps of rejection and not not hearing back but that did help me think about like think about it differently being like okay it's not that there's anything wrong with me it's just that he's looking for something else and that's fine I'll find someone if I keep looking yeah what an amazing kind of persistence in a way because you know I, I have several friends who I think it was around the same time that a lot of my friends also had this realization that they've been spending too much of their time focusing on their career and probably not enough on figuring out who they were, you know, going to spend the rest of their life with. And there was a bit of a mad scramble in our early thirties where everyone was kind of just dropping like flies. Everyone was kind of either settling down from going from single to into a long-term relationship and suddenly married and a couple of kids had come. You could see kind of a lot of people, you know, panicking in that period of time. But some people weren't able to get those dates underway because it was just too stressful having to keep going out and put your brave face on. How long did it take? How long was 138 dates? Was that two years? Three years. So three. It was three years. And it was also Sydney, San Francisco and New York, so three cities. <laughs> but, I mean, it was, really, it was really hard. So I think at the beginning there was a massive amount of fear that I had which is why I had been single for 10 years. I mean, early in the book, you kind of learn about this partner that I met when I was very young and was deeply in love with. We broke up, but shortly after that, he was killed in an accident. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of like got me quite stuck because I was grieving and I was like regretful. And then I kind of used that as an excuse to stay stuck and to focus on work. And so then it got to the point of like, and then I just got scared of I had a little bit of a profile in business and I thought if I put myself on the internet dating sites, people are going to think I'm a loser. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And so the fear of missing out on something that was really important to me, which was I did want to have a family and I did want to have love. Like that was the main thing. I wanted to have a partner. 
I was kind of getting progressively lonelier and lonelier. And I think at one point, like it just the it just tipped where the fear of being alone for the rest of my life kind of outweighed the fear of being rejected or looking stupid. And so then I just went crazy going, okay, <laughs> solve this now. I really don't care. When I, mean, I do care, I was still scared, but it's more important for me to try and figure out how to find someone and yeah. So like how to be in a relationship and make it work like long-term. So lots of self-growth along the way. You, you, did you fundamentally change as a person from the time you started to the, to the time, you know, you kind of got to the end of that cycle? Yes. I'd say I stripped back a lot, which seems like it's obvious and easy, but it actually isn't. Like I think I knew you should be yourself but it's really hard to do. And so like actually the process was kind of this process of stripping things back until the point where, and there was like a big kind of transformational moment, which I won't go into like totally because that gives away the entire story. But that was two weeks before I met Rod, my partner, which really triggered that final, it was that final big thing I had to let go of, which was getting in the way. And then, you know, I don't know if it was coincidence that I met him at that point, but I was like in the right space. I was the right person. And then he was the right person. And it was, it was a match. I know timing is everything. I wanted to kind of go back a little bit and, and talk about your business life because I, I feel like there's a, a certain type of person that needs to kind of A, manage a band and, and deal in the entertainment space, especially back then. But also I think, you know, to launch businesses and to, especially in a global scale, to get on planes, to turn up in front of meetings, you know, tell us a little bit about your background and how you set yourself up to take that path in business and obviously, you know, lead you into this direction? It's a bunch of things. I think like I'm trying to kind of unpick this and it's part of it is like personality. Part of it is like when I was at school, probably quite average in lots of ways. When I was at uni, I decided there's like this long holiday break at university. And I was like, what am I going to do for these three months? And so I had this idea of running a concert to raise awareness of youth suicide. So this is in Wellington, New Zealand, which is where I grew up. And so I was just like, it would just be a nice project. And then anyway, my friend gave me Neil Finn's home phone number because she worked at the student radio station. And I didn't even really know who he was, but I called him up at home and he answered. And then we had this big chat about suicide in, in New Zealand and youth mental health. And he was like, this happened to be something he was really passionate about. And so he agreed to play at my concert. So that was how I got into music. And then I found myself organizing this massive event in the university holidays as like a 19-year-old. And in the end, there was like every big band in New Zealand played and it was like 15,000 people. And it was all broadcast on TV. It was raising awareness of all the support organizations. But like doing that, I remember waking up every day going, this is all going to fall over. I don't know how to raise the money. And like, I can't even pay my mobile phone bill. I've got these parking tickets. Like in the end, I pulled it off. And then that was a huge moment of being like, shit, you know, I can actually, if I say I'm going to do something, then so long as I keep at it, eventually I'll get there. I remember that thought very clearly. And then that was like, okay, well, now what's possible? Because if you know that you are the kind of person that can stick at things Mm. and eventually you'll work it out, it's going to be really hard. Then that just made my ambition so much greater. I was going to be a journalist was my original idea. But then I was like, no, I want to do business or something or politics or something else. I didn't know. But then Neil Finn's manager offered me a job in Sydney after that event. And so that I moved to Sydney and worked for him for a year. His manager said, you know, you should find a little band and manage them yourself on the side. So you get to know like 
the industry and what it takes to break a band kind of thing. And so I found this little band, which was, they were called George. And they, at that stage, like a brand new, hadn't even really been played on Triple J. I saw them play at this tiny pub in Balmain. And I was like, this is my band because they were great. <laughs> and so they became huge. And so I left and set up my own company when I was like 23 and then started signing bands. And definitely, I think that idea of persistence, that was really, was always my go-to. Yeah, I, was not, I knew I was not the smartest person. I'm definitely not the most likable, you know, person that, I don't know if you remember me from that time, but lots of I wasn't like super popular or anything with people at record companies or radio stations or whatever, but I'd be really persistent and annoyingly persistent. You know, things would work. I mean, yeah, back in, in Sony days, right? Was it Sony or Universal? Universal. Universal, right, okay. I don't know if we were any artists with Universal, though. I had Van Shee, which was on it. But Evermore was my big, biggest artist. And then later, Matt Corby and um, Lisa Mitchell and stuff. Yeah, you've had some incredible artists. And what kind of took you out of the music industry into tech? Because that's quite a big leap. But did you completely come out of music or did you kind of keep one foot in? Well, I decided I wanted to get out of music. I remember clearly being at the big day out. Mm. I was about 30 at the stage. And I remember like I'd done the Big Day Out tour so many years in a row and it was like awesome, but I no longer felt excited about it. I kind of felt like I was living someone else's life, like someone else would love to be here, but I'm no longer passionate about this. I felt quite, I remember like crying actually. I'd operate a please on stage and I was crying backstage and I was like, what am I doing with my life? And I felt guilty for taking up that space when someone else could have taken it. And I just knew that I had to make a change. But it was hard because I had this business with employees and it was quite successful by that point. And a management business is not something you can sell. You know, you're the key person. So I was like, basically, I knew I had to dismantle the business and start from scratch. How many bands were you managing and how did you kind of unmanage them? I had eight and I found other managers for some where they were comfortable with the new manager and I was able to get some kind of ongoing royalty, but really it was a dismantling of the whole thing. Mm. It's quite an awakening almost that you had and definite decision to move out of it. You know, was it just overnight you decided that's it and you started un- unraveling it straight away or did it take a period of time to kind of unwind out of it and you, did you just rip the bandaid? <laughs> I did rip the bandaid in the end. It did take a period of time. It was a period of time where I knew that, I couldn't see myself in the music industry in my 40s and 50s. Being a woman or because? I think part of it, there was no woman role models. No one I could see where I'd be like, I want to be like that. Mm. And like the, there are definitely promoters who had been really successful, but I was very different to them. I was not really a music person. In your heart. Yeah, I was probably more of a business person. Music was fun, but I didn't, like it wasn't my life and I just felt like, I was never going to be great at it because it wasn't my calling, I didn't think. I also felt like I kind of got frustrated being a manager. It's not actually ever your own thing. The more successful you help your artist to become, the less kind of control you have. You kind of can be fired at any point. So you kind of have the worst of both worlds, like you're building this business that can leave as opposed to building a business that you sell. And so I did think at some point I wanted to build something that was mine Mm. that I could shape and could eventually Mm. sell or just that I could make the decisions about myself 
Mm, yes. Yeah. That's something probably you don't realize until you're in there managing that it is quite a vulnerable position in a way. And, and also you're at the mercy of a lot of people's personalities. <laughs> Eight bands, that's a lot of personalities to take on. Yes. Yes. And the bands are getting younger and younger and I keep getting older, you know, like so the. <laughs> Quite fun when you're the same age as the band and you're traveling around together, but then you know, when they're like 18 and you're you know 30, then it's not, it's no longer, yeah, you know, it lost some of the fun for me. But so you're kind of entering your second career chapter, which was being a tech startup entrepreneur. Yes, <laughs> um, I probably didn't think about that one as much as I should have, but the social network movie had come out. <laughs> and I was like that looks really fun it kind of made sense out of music because there's a lot of transferable from like building brands and finding you know particularly in music you've got to find an audience for something that nobody actually even needs yeah and you become resilient as well I think that's the other thing you know you have a lot of resilience when you work in the entertainment industry because you hear a lot you see a lot that you just have to put up with and well back then you did certainly yeah, and you become good at hustling, I think. Yeah. You just have to hustle to get anything done. Like, no one has any resources. And so, yeah, you've got to kind of be clever to get noticed or to have any kind of success. So I started Posse. Originally, it was an idea for music to sell tickets, for help bands to sell tickets. It just didn't work as a business model. I mean, it sold tickets. Future Music actually bought it. When I say bought, that like they took it over and paid something, but it was like nowhere near what it cost us to make it so we lost money in it and stuff but it was still amazing kind of learning experience and so then I thought about the idea of doing something kind of similar like encouraging people to recommend shops so Posse was about recommending shops but it never had a business model it was like quite a good number of use people using it to like recommend places and find places and a really engaged number of shops all over the world using it to connect with their audience and like kind of send them gifts it wasn't quite engaged enough to start charging for it. And then I thought, well, we could add payments to it. Now, enable people to pay initially at cafes and restaurants. The idea was eventually everywhere. And then so we brought in this business Beat the Queue and they had a loyalty business as well. And then we were like, hey, let's wrap these three things together. And we rebranded it to Hey You. Amazing. And Hey You, I mean, it's everywhere. Is it something that you roll out globally? You're still involved in Hey You, aren't you? You're an investor or a co-founder. Yeah. Yeah, I'm still a co-founder of it with the founder of Beat the Q, but neither of us work in the business anymore. He left in 2016, I think. He started another business actually, which is doing really well called Automentum. And I left a year later after which I transitioned to a new CEO and I just had a baby and I just wanted to do something different at that point. How do you fund kind of these kind of ideas? Because they're big, big ideas, big tech ideas, and you flew yourself around the world. You're in San Francisco pitching business for many years. How does all that kind of materialize? You've got investors and, you know, funding along the way, right? Yeah. I mean, initially I just funded it myself. When I was able to raise money, then I kind of spread the risk, I guess. But yeah, you can put a bunch of your own money and effort to get it off the ground. And how did you then kind of know what to do in terms of raising money? Is that something you had experience in before or? No, exactly the same as the concert, you know, you just figure it out. (laughs) I think I worked out that I did like 450 pitches or something in that first round or something crazy. Like it took me a year and a half to raise the first round of capital. I mean, the night before my first pitch, my first pitch was to Warner Music actually. And I remember the night before calling up my friend and asking him how to use PowerPoint because I never used (laughs) it. I like made this really funny PowerPoint presentation. But then like I'd write down the questions 
you know, go away afterwards and go, this is what they asked and this is, I've got to think about this thing. And I just improve the deck every day mm-hmm. until after probably a year of pitching everywhere that I could, it was quite good. And then <laughs> someone said yes and then other people would follow. Once you had a couple of people that said yes, then that had credibility, then other people would kind of fall in and eventually I put around together. Do you feel like that you've used your network to kind of get those meetings? I mean, 400-odd meetings with investors, I mean, that comes with a lot of networking and obviously recommendations and word of mouth and someone helping you out. It's a great network, you know, that you have there. I think I didn't have that network. I had some music. It started with some music people. So it started with a pitch to everybody that I could in music. They would often have like someone else that they knew and then they would have someone else that they knew. So Mm -hmm. even though a lot of like virtually everybody said no, I would try and be the kind of person where in the meeting, you know, I was enthusiastic and they could see some potential. They just were not quite sold. And they'll be like, I want you to meet my friend, such and such. That was how I got my next meeting. That's incredible. I love that. I mean, that speaks volumes to, you know, how you had the tenacity to go on 138 dates. It seems like this is just you, you know, you, you really give it a go and make it happen. Whatever the consequence of how much time and energy you have to put into that, that's what you'll do. And I mean, that's just an incredible trait that you have there. Where do you think that came from? I don't know. I mean, I think part of it came from that initial experience of the concert and just knowing that that's, that's the first time I can remember doing that I mean also I was a runner when I was at school I don't know if that had anything to do with it but I was a long distance runner and it's kind of like being like I've got to keep going I've got to win this thing or I've got to get a good time or whatever but it's the same kind of stamina thing I think maybe I'm like I'm like quite optimistic which makes me a risk taker I put myself in these positions that can be quite scary Mm. and I have to figure it out do you find it easier to do that now like as life goes on you just it doesn't feel like a risk. It doesn't feel like you're putting yourself out there. It's just the way it is. No, I mean, I don't know. I find it harder now because I have children to take those same kind of risks. Yeah. The book was also was a risk though. As I say that, I think the book was a risk, like a personal risk. And if it didn't do well, it would be kind of really embarrassing to have just put that all out there and like nobody even cares. But I mean, you can mitigate that risk by trying to do a good job of writing it and then by trying to do a good job of promoting it. So yeah. So tell us, it came out last month and how is it going and and what's been the response that you've had to the book? It's been great. It's been really lovely, actually. I mean, writing a book is the hardest thing because with a business, you get feedback straight away. You try to get feedback as quickly as you can so you can kind of iterate and improve. Whereas writing a book, you have no idea whether anyone is going to be interested in it. I spent 18 months pretty much full-time writing the book and I didn't have a publisher. So that was scary knowing that anyone would want to publish this Publishers are going to be expecting me to write about business. So how did you get a publisher? Oh, so when I landed in New Zealand, so we moved to New Zealand for a while because my husband got a job here last September with our two children and I just decided to write an article and we were in managed isolation and I thought I'd write an article about our experience of traveling with two young children and having and being in managed isolation with two young kids. And then I sent it to like the biggest news site in New Zealand and then it went viral and became like the most read article of that week or something. So Alan and Anwan, the woman who runs that publishing company here, reached out and said, have you thought about writing a book? And so... I just just like, I'll share something with her and see what she thinks. You're already writing the book at this point. Yes. At that point, I had already written like pretty much the whole first draft and I was halfway through the second draft. You must have just been thrilled. (laughs) I planned on 
finishing it before I gave it to a publisher because I just wanted to get happy with it before I got impacted by too many people's opinions. And I was scared that if I started sending it to publishers and, they, and I got rejected, then I'd stop. Yeah, so I sent it to her and she really loved it. So she came back to me like two hours later and was just like, I love this. And did you send her the whole book? I sent her, I think I, I kind of tied it up. I sent her this basically the second draft. So like overall, I sent her about 50,000 words. She sent, she sent it to the Australian company. So obviously like Australia is my main market and it's an Australian story, but they were really excited as well. So I spoke to the person who runs Alan and Unwin in Australia and he really wanted to do it. So yeah, they're a great publisher and I would have been crazy, I think, to have <laughs> not taken that off. Yeah, absolutely. And so that it's all been very, I wouldn't say smooth, it's been really hard, but it's been, it's, it's all moved very quickly since then. So what's involved in kind of, you know, you've, you've got the book published, that can't, that bit was relatively straightforward, but now it's published. What do you do now? You, you, you said just when we we're off camera that your main role, your main focus at the moment is promoting the book. What does that in, involve for you? It's like having great, having this music experience, right? Where, you know, as a manager, you kind of have to, the record company will do something, but record companies don't have a massive amount of money. So you have kind of low expectations. You do everything you possibly can yourself. So I kind of went into it with the same mindset of like, I know publishers don't make heaps of money. I can't expect them to spend on marketing it or anything. Otherwise I'm just going to be like disappointed. The realities of it doesn't make sense as a business to do that. So I kind of was like, I'm going to try and make this work. They've done an amazing job, actually. They've done a great job of getting it into stores and they put on a publicist who has just did an incredible job of getting some really good media placements. There was a big article in the City Morning Herald and, and Australian Women's Weekly, which kind of made it take off. And then, yeah, from then on, I've kind of taken it and run with it from there. But yeah, I think it's been a team effort and <laughs> it like it's going really well. I mean, the main, the most exciting thing is that my inbox is flooded every day with lovely messages mainly for women, but not exclusively, like some guys as well, just saying how like they didn't think there was anyone out there that felt like them and that they feel like, you know, this is like exactly the thing they needed to read at this point in their life. And that's like been the best thing. And how are they getting in touch with you? Are they finding you, seeking you out through the publisher? No, just Instagram or Facebook or um, putting messages on my website, but like a lot of it's Instagram. And like, (laughs) do you reply to them all? Yes, I am applying to them all at the moment. Yeah. Right. Awesome. Even just like, glad you enjoyed it. Thanks so much for your message. When I was writing the book, I like would go through this kind of roller coaster of no one is ever going to read this. I'm going to completely humiliating myself here. I'm never going to get it published. To, you know, some days I'll be like, this is great. I've just written something awesome and I'll be really excited. But I'd have to tell myself that if I can just reach one person and they feel like it makes a difference for them in their life and like they're able to get something out of it that will have made it all worth it. So it's been like the most awesome thing is to get these messages to come. And what's the plan for the future? So now you're an author. Is this your new career path? Is this your third career? <laughs> I think it is actually, yeah. I think yeah. I would like to write more books. Like I've got an idea for a book that I'm working on now. Can you tell? Um, I can't tell what it's about <laughs> at this stage because it might not work out. So I just want to give it, I'm going to give it another couple of months. I don't want to talk about it and then like that the book didn't turn out and do anything. So yeah, I definitely loved writing the process of writing the book. I think you go through phases in life, right? Mm-hmm. And I've got two young children now. I feel like it's something that I'm good at and I really enjoy doing and I can pick them up from school and take them to the park after school. When I was in business, I was doing a lot of things that I wasn't that good at. And I spent lots of time getting coaching, trying to fix things. <laughs> you know, my project management skills and people management <laughs> skills and stuff. I was never great at those things. And then 
when I turned 40, I was like, maybe I should just stop trying to do those things instead of continuing to try to fix these things. Because yeah. maybe I've been working on the same thing for 15 years. I'm actually not going to get better at it. Maybe I should just <laughs> remove them and focus on things that I am good at and maybe I'll be happier. And so yeah. this life phase has been like looking kind of inwards and going, okay, I'm good at writing. I'm good at parenting. <laughs> <laughs> I try to be good at parenting. I don't know if I am good at parenting, but I definitely try. I enjoy it. But yeah, it's just like, it's totally different mindset. I don't see myself writing books till the end of my life. It's like a phase three and hopefully it'll be a phase four as well. You've got three clear phases so far. I mean, it's fascinating. At this ripe old age of in your 40s now, and I think it is such an amazing time, isn't it? Because you do just start really shedding the things that don't serve you and really focusing on the things that are working, like you say. What other changes in your life are are really kind of coming to the surface personally? Do you think, has it been a a result of everything that you've been through so far? Do you notice that there are other changes kind of materialized? I mean, I think like I feel more happy now than ever. Mm. I'm just way more self-accepting. I think as soon as I stop trying to fix and change things, <laughs> then I would be like, you know what, even, you know, I'm pretty disorganized naturally. And when I think back at school, I was always at the messiest desk and I would always arrive in and my teacher would turn it upside down. And like, that's just my brain does not work in a very organized way. And I used to always beat myself up about it and be like, have this awful self-talk about how useless I was. And now it's like when I'm disorganized or late or whatever, it's like, oh, that's you, you know, that's your thing again. You know, I try to like mitigate it by being better at it, but I don't have that kind of self-loathing and try to focus on things that, okay, well, I am good at these other things and I'm really grateful that I'm good at those other things. Mm-hmm. And even like I used to look at, and then I remember like I had lunch with Mia Friedman once when I was in my 20s and she was seven or eight years older than me and I thought she was the coolest person ever. And I was thinking I should be like her. And I had this kind of image in my mind of what a successful Sydney woman looks like. And it looked like Mia Friedman. And she's like outgoing and funny, always beautiful. And and I just was really like thought that I was not, because I wasn't that, I'm never going to be the most likable, outgoing, funny person. But I, you know, it's just like not loathing yourself and not being that mm-hmm. instead recognizing that's not what you are. You're this other thing and that's great. So I feel like that, that's been my big, biggest kind of real revelation of my early 40s of just yeah. accepting myself and trying to focus on those things that I'm good at. Yeah, awesome. That's amazing. One of the kind of questions we like to ask our guests is, is has there been a life-changing book that you've read along the way that's really kind of shaped how you are or some of the decisions that you've made? Yes. So I was going to watch your one book, but it's like quite cringewillingly unoriginal because everybody's read it, which is where the crawdads sing. Oh, I've read it. Yeah. I just read it about six months ago. It's amazing. It is an amazing book. That book really did make me think about the impact of like place and where you grow up and like kind of your roots. As I read that book, I kept thinking I wanted to get out and see the world, and but she's going to stay in that mask for her whole life, and what a waste! <laughs> but then I realized, like, hang on, like she is that place. That made me like think about like where I was from. I did grow up in New Zealand, and the outdoors mean so much to me. And the water, you know, the, like I grew up next, it's kind of like lake, which is where I am now. And I started really thinking about my roots, and I've spent so much of my twenties and thirties wanting to get out and see the world, make something. Whereas actually the kind of something that is most significant to me is actually home. And that made me start thinking about spending more time in New Zealand and yeah. Yeah, enjoying being back there now. 
Yeah, yeah, we are. I mean, I miss my friends, obviously, and like, there's a lot about Sydney that I really love, and it's different. It's a different pace here, but yeah, there's a lot that I love about it being here as well. It's a great place with, for kids to grow up, I think, and especially at the moment, I've got some space, great space around you. And our final question is: Is there something important that you have on your mind that's kind of going around in your head, and you just want to get on a podium and and talk to people about it? Is there a topic that really kind of you know is important to you? Hmm. Topic. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think I guess the message of my book is not necessarily that you know how to have find a partner and have kids. Like it's really about powerful choices, thinking about what's important to you and then choosing powerfully. And the same with like when you do choose a partner. I think I spent a lot of time in my twenties and thirties, like moving on from relationships, not romantic relationships, obviously, not valuing relationships as much as as I should have and thinking like, is there something better? You know, like business partnerships, for example, looking at a business partner and going, he could be doing more of this. Or if I had another different business partner, you know, things would be better. I've worked out now. I'm in like a relationship. Like the worst thing that you can do is question whether they're the right person. You know, you, you have to like go, I've chosen this person and don't put any energy into questioning whether it's the right relationship. Put all your energy into trying to make it work. How can I make this person's life amazing? And how can I make this work? And I've chosen this person forever. Obviously, there's limits and stuff like, you know, but I think like that's a good place to start is like, you yeah. know, if I look at my business relationships, I think I could have had much more successful businesses actually. I don't know, choosing powerfully. And then once you've made a choice, you can't choose. Like, I choose whether I, I wish it wasn't raining today. It's like it is raining today. So just yeah. choose raining. And deal with it. Work around that. Don't try and choose it not raining. If you're trying to think about your partner all the time as being like, oh, I wish he was more this or more that. It's like, you know, if you if you find move on to something else, then you'll probably find that the next person has something else as well. It's just like put more energy into how do you make it work. I guess that's part of the message of one of the messages in the book. Yeah. Rebecca, it's been so amazing to chat with you today. And actually, you know, I could chat on with you for ages because there's so much I actually want to ask you, but we've run out of time, unfortunately. But it's been so wonderful having you on. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. And congratulations on 138 Dates. It's such an absolutely fabulous book. I can't wait to keep reading it. Awesome. Well, I hope you enjoy the rest of it. And thank you so much, Mia. It's lovely to, um, to reconnect with you as well. Make sure you subscribe to our channel and stay tuned for more episodes from A Moment with Modern Mentors coming your way soon.